You want to stay here, Shane asked. His bulkier frame blocked out what little light came from the window. Torin pulled himself out of his sleeping bag. If it's all right, he said. What do you say, Paulie? We let him, Shane said. All right with me, if he wants to, Paulie smiled. You've got to help us get oysters, Shane said. I can do that. We've to be on our way, down early to get a good go at them. Won't they know we've nicked them? Torin crawled out of his sleeping bag into the chill air. No one could prove it. Shane pulled a dark blue sweatshirt over his head, black curls crumpling down. No one would know we did it, if they don't see us. Okay, I'm with you. Torin rose and dressed. Beyond the grimy window, the sky and fields ran into each other, and the continuous cry of waves was disorientating. Birdsong rippled the air. He rubbed through grime on the glass. The bird had wings so big, they might have weighed down any chance of flight. The haze of green and boggy land stretched to the sea, where, according to Paulie, oyster catchers and red shanks dived past midnight. They ran out to the fields of lumpen cows lying down. Way out, waves threw themselves against rocks. Showers sprayed, cascaded. So much nature, he was made small by it. Paulie ran ahead. So fast, he could have been a footballer. He was as quick as the lads on the track at White City. Torin used to hang around it near the hospital and the prison when he and the others jibbed each other about how they might end up in one or the other. Shane caught up, his eyes dark and sharp. Heavier built than Paulie, he could run as fast. You came over with your mother, Shane asked. Yeah, the sandy ground was falling apart. Wisps of stray grasses lingered. Being outside made him more aware of the inside of himself. It was empty as though his outer part had fallen away. She's showing off her gossoon, Shane laughed. She wanted to see her dad and other stuff, Torin shrugged. Oh, nothing. I mean, only a mate got knife. This guy in London, he annoyed us. It was your fault? It was an accident. There was a crowd, so we're all treated as suspects. He kicked a stone, skimming it through a whiff of dust. But you didn't do it. I was holding a knife for someone. There was a scrum, pushing and shoving. No one knew what was going on. Is he dead then? He's in hospital. Oh, that's okay. But I'm afraid still the police might turn up here. Shane shook his head. No one ever comes here. Why would they? There's fuck all going on. He shook his head. Come on, we might catch sight of a rabbit. Catch one. Shoot it. Shoot! Only kidding. Shane danced delightedly, a taunting smile on his face. See the holes? He pointed to pockets of dark in the ground. In the evening, they're all over the place. And if I'd a gun, he raised his arms as though he held one, and did it so quickly it was frightening. I'd give him one. Could you? Would you be able to get a gun? Torrin asked. It seemed a simple task, an easy target. Farmers have them, 
but I wouldn't get the use of one. Too bloody strict. My uncle had one years ago, a Webley and Scott, used to lean against the dresser. It had lovely engraving around the barrel, but I'd never get it off him. He had it to shoot rabbits, and I was with him once when he shot one. He put it in a pot and we ate it. Nice bit of lean meat and good quality too from them running around in the, in the fields. But there's an awful smell from it. What do you do with them? Skin them, a good slit around the back and over the legs. If it's young, easy, great taste. We used to get a good bit of grub out of them. The jug would be warm after collecting the blood for the black pudding afterwards, and what was no good was left for the dog. Shane pulled a leather string from round his neck, where a stub of dark fur hung. Lucky charm, he laughed, pulling it around and stroking it from the first rabbit. He strode ahead, catching up with Paulie by the side of the ditch, and crossed a small bridge of worn planks. He raised the barbed wire on the top of the fence to let Torrin through. They ran onto dry, rough grass, sand flying from their shoes. At the shore, they crept among boulders, fat and squat as toads. To one side, silvery shards splintered against the slate cathedral of rock, a looming presence. Spray from waves rose like a curtain. Poor Drake's rock, Paulie said, after a fisherman clung to it for hours, waiting to be rescued. Black fishing boats, worn out and old, were beached. The glass around the deck of a larger one was smashed, and only the wooden section surrounding the wheel was left, though collapsing. It had been out to sea before it was banged up there. It had been in the deepest waters, exploring, taking whatever the waves hurled. What would it be like living here with mostly the sea for company? He might go mad looking at the same fields, the same kind of sky overhead. Even the cows moved like old women, their low slung hips wide and thin legs walking leisurely. Torin walked around a sleek red boat, larger than the others. This is nice. He placed his palm against the side. Some rich buggers, Shane said. I'd love a boat like this. Think where you could go, Paulie said. The Caribbean, the Med, your own master. Free for whatever the mood takes you. Go anywhere. Let's head this way, Shane said, taking the lead. Thanks. Thank you, Deirdre. Um, the next author we've got on is Diana Skelton. Diana lives and works in Camberwell. She has three children and is part of Altogether in Dignity, ATD Fourth World, a worldwide anti-poverty movement. She will speak about Until the Sky Turns Silver, a 2019 Indie Next Generation Book Awards finalist that was co-written with civil rights heroine Jean Stallings. Their publisher, Sondiata Global Media, is a UK-based social enterprise that helps the African dysphoria tell the story. Although this is Skelton's first foray into fiction, her non-fiction books include Artisans of Peace Overcoming, 
poverty and UNICEF's How Poverty Separates Parents and Children. So welcome, Diana. Thank you so much. Um, so first, I'm going to introduce uh, Amanda. I'm, I'm Diana, and Amanda is an activist who's together with me in All Together in Dignity, uh, ATV Fourth World. Um, and we're here, the two of us, because um, what we're going to read from this book is a dialogue with two different voices, and also because this book came from many of the voices in All Together in Dignity. Um, Oh, can, can you hear me now? <laughs> Should I say that again? <laughs> um, so the way uh, we do things in All Together in Dignity is really bringing together people with completely different experiences. And that's, that's where this book comes from. Um, that uh, in, the, in the book, we tell the story of uh, people who are geographically in New York. Um, one of them is from Northern England, one is from Tanzania, one is from Belgium. Some are from inner city, urban New York, from really low-income communities. Some travel to New York from Appalachia, which is a very uh, rural part of the United States um, that's also struggling a lot with poverty. But So some of the people in the book are struggling with poverty. But some of them aren't. Some of them are diplomats at the United Nations who are really um, trying to do something good, but it can be very, very difficult to communicate across those two backgrounds. So that's, that's kind of where our story comes from. And before we read you this excerpt, one more thing. Um, the excerpt in the book, the, well, a lot of what the book is talking about is um, these very different people who are collaborating because they're trying to prepare the World Day for Overcoming Poverty, which is in the middle of October. And so I just wanna mention there's some flyers in the back of the room because this event is also celebrated here in London and will be in Bermondsey on the 19th of October if anybody wants to join us. So um, now we're going to read the, uh, an excerpt from chapter two. Um, the character that Amanda is reading is trying to prepare a speech to give at the United Nations. Um, but at the moment, um, the flat that she lives in is very overpopulated because neighbors have been evicted and she said, come on in, and so her flat is full of them. So, how are you doing preparing this speech? It must be much harder for you now to prepare that you have all your neighbor's children underfoot. Oh, they used to come over all the time, so it's not that different. But I have a question. Is what I write supposed to be just about my personal experience? Or can I write something about all of us, what we go through, even people who don't come to our meetings? Well, it's up to you. But I think it's very important to write about what lots of people face and how they cope. But that's not what Anella said. She did in her speech last year. It was all about her and her husband. I bet everyone was bored silly. That's not fair. Didn't you see? Her speech was very well received. No, you sent me off to prepare sandwiches. I only heard, read her speech later. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'd forgotten that. 
I do remember that you were annoyed when Ornella was asked to speak. Well, she talks on and on and on. I can't even listen to her. Well, this time, it's going to be Ornella who will listen to you. That's why you have to get serious to prepare. You know, at the United Nations, more and more, they've started inviting people who live in poverty or people who live in a war zone to come and speak personally, to give a kind of a first-person testimonial. That's good. I hope they listen. Well, it could be good, but there's something that really upsets me. It's that when somebody uh, is invited in that way, at the United Nations, they're suddenly expected to unveil their most personal experience of suffering, and then they're also expected to leave the room while policymakers start debating what to do about it. That's, not just, that's just not fair to expect people to say so much personal stuff. It's like they're being put on trial. Exactly. Once I heard a young man speak at the United Nations about how hard it was for him to escape the war in his country. And the first question that a diplomat asked was, why didn't you try harder to help your sister escape? But I think the young man already felt terrible that his sister had died because he was the one who brought up her death in the first place. So that, just, that question, it just tw twists the knife in more and more. Yeah, exactly. Diplomats speak at the United Nations every day, but they're never asked to speak so personally. Let's say there's a man who's begging in the streets, and he goes up to a diplomat like Blondine to ask her for help. How does she respond? Mm, good luck with that one. Well, even if she doesn't give money, what goes through her mind? What does she feel? Diplomats don't tell us that, but they expect that somebody who's been unemployed for a long time to speak about how terrible that feels. A diplomat is never going to make a public speech about his most embarrassing cultural blunder or a speech that he messed up. If it's that bad, why does everyone ever agree to go and speak at the United Nations? Well, the thing is, it's not that bad for everyone. Take a labor union leader. He's expected to speak on behalf of thousands of people and also expected to speak not just about suffering, but about proposed solutions. Yeah, but nobody asks them personal questions. No, they don't. If a labor union leader is talking about difficulties on an assembly line or in a mine, they're talking from a collective point of view. But then when you introduce a speaker who has lived experience of poverty, People want to hear something deeply personal about their past, and they don't expect to hear thoughts about how to change the future together. So that's why you think I should speak a lot for other people. Yes. And in fact, that's how you already speak. So I'm sure that you could change the way people listen. Hmm. We'll see. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm Thank you, ladies. Another round of applause. I think this is the final author we've got here tonight. Uh, we've got Chris Christopher Impey. He's an award-winning journalist and radio producer. 
He spent nine years working in HMP Brixton, where he was managing editor of National Prison Radio, the world's first national radio station for prisoners. He has made a number of documentaries for Radio 4, including London's oldest prison, based on his research into HMP Brixton. He currently works for The Economist. So give him a round of applause. Uh, so Brixton Prison is 200 years old this year. Uh, I've written a history of it. Uh, this is the only chapter written in the first person. I'm going to give you a few footnotes. So Babs is Barbara Windsor. A straightener is a fight, and a spill is an illegal gambling den. And the chapter's called Mickey. I can't do the South London accent, unfortunately. Armed robbery was a trade. You'd do a bit of observation on vans, or you'd see a bit of work, or someone would come up with a bit of work, and we were ruthless. We'd take no prisoners. We'd come in, you're on the floor. You come after us, there'd be shootings. Chase through London, crash into a car, jump out, run through the traffic, pull a geezer out of a car, and take it. I learned the trade, and we went to work. We'd cut sides of fans open with chainsaws. In them days, there wasn't the die in the boxes, but it still goes on. What man makes, man breaks. I was in Brixton in the early 90s. I was on A-Wing then. I shared a cell with Ronnie Knight, Babs's husband. It was so much different. We never had no TVs in the cells. I had a Roberts radio. You get a bowl to wash in, a plastic jug, some plastic plates, a towel. It was a lot simpler. We used to have to slop out. People don't realize about that, to have to pee and poo in a bucket. It was better to wait for morning and poo in the toilets out on the wing, an unregular. It has to be the prison that done it to me, because I get up in the morning, I have one cup of tea, and I'm in the toilet. Them days, you could have a tuck sent in, so you could get dinner every day if you wanted. My bird at that time was a cordon bleu chef, and she used to bring all my food down. You'd get it, and you'd reheat it on the hot plate and a can of special brew. It was the maddest time. The staff in the 90s were very strict, very different to what we've got now. But they were all right. If you got on with them, you were OK. You could stand up and have a fight with some of the screws. There was one officer, he turned around and said, I'll clip the door and we'll have a straightener. If you fancy it, we'll have it now. To me, that was a proper geezer, and he'd done a good few people. I seen him have a fight. I liked him. Brixton was Brixton. Everyone knew what you were going to get. It was a shithole. It'd be so hot in the summer, you'd smash the window out and in the winter you'd freeze. No one wanted to go there. When I came back in 2007, I was shocked. There were TVs in the cells, the staff were young, it was so much easier, more relaxed. I knew I was gonna do a sentence, two and a half years. It was a family thing how it all happened. I was a bit nervous. I was getting on, 59 years of age, and when the door closed behind me, I decided myself, I'm going to train in the cell, read the Bible, meditate. 
and when the door was opened, I was out. I got a job as a cleaner, which suited me, because I wanted to stay on C-wing. Otherwise, he had to go on A-wing, which was madness. Bare root, they called it. Something happened to me. I discovered I wanted to help other people. I was there in induction when I'd just got nicked, and there was this guy sitting next to me. He'd been done for drunken driving. He'd never been in prison in his life. His feet never touched the ground the night he was nicked. He was still in the same clothes. I said, you'll be all right, and he didn't really understand what was going on, and I wound up working in induction. There was a gay guy from Belgium called Eddie, and he was getting bullied. One of the staff came to me and asked me to look out for him, and I'm a known figure in South London because I'm one of the boys. So I used to try and settle things down. I became this go-to guy, and I ended up sharing a cell with him, and we talked about improving induction, and we did it with pictures, because people couldn't read or write. You give someone a leaflet, and they can't make sense of it. I can spot someone, his head down or tucked up in the corner. I go over and see him and say, what's the matter? Here's a cup of tea. It'll be all right. Just enough to settle them in. It's a shocking place to walk into, prison. I just wanted to help people. There was someone who came in who was partially sighted, and they couldn't put him on the ground floor. He couldn't get down the steps. So every morning, I'd go and get him and take him down for breakfast. I was church orderly for the Muslims and the Christians. I just wanted everyone to have what they were supposed to have. Paper, writing materials. I used to drive the screws mad. A lot of people knew me. I'd had nightclubs, spills, bars, and I wrote a film called Snatch with Guy Ritchie. I had a security firm, and I went to a boxing do one night, and I had two bodyguards around me. Someone introduced me to Guy. He asked me to tell him stories and show him round because he wanted to know about the underworld. I took him to Millwall when they played at Wembley in the Cup and introduced him to a few of the chaps. I did it our way, had a couple of pints in the hourglass, and I took him on the coach. He was saying, I'm going out with the Queen of Pop. I didn't know who the Queen of Pop was, but it transpires it was Madonna. He says, Mick, you can tell a cracking story. Why don't you write it down? I said, but I'm dyslexic. Don't worry, he said. So am I. He gave me a laptop and I started writing. He came to visit me in Brixton. A screw came over and said, I wondered whose stretch limo that was at the bottom of the road. <laughs> By doing what I was doing in Brixton, helping people, it made me, and I still have the same routine. I get up early, make a cup of tea, I say my prayers, I do meditation, stretching, a bit of weights, I'm nearly 67, and I feel 50. And it's the routine I changed around in prison. Now I'm out, I'm writing another film. A guy in LA is paying me to do it. If you want to change, things will change in your life. Thanks. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I just have a few thank yous that I would like to say. Thank you to everyone who attended tonight to listen to our authors. Thank you. Uh, big clap for yourselves. 
Thank you to the authors for uh, amazing accounts of the books that you're going to be, well, you have published and that a lot of us will be buying. So thank you very much. Had some good stories tonight. Thank you to the Hootenanny for hosting us. Always a good host. Thank you, Dablo. Thanks to Zelda and Stuart for putting on such an amazing night. Uh, thanks to Andy, DJ, for the music. Thanks to the sound guy. <laughs> and just to let you know, the next book jam will be on December the 2nd. So it'll be a Monday, December the 2nd. So be there. Absolutely, I second that. Um, it's Black History Month this month. There's a lot going on in Clapham Libraries, Brixton Libraries, Streatham Libraries. Sorry, darling. I can't hear what you're saying. The bookstore, yes. Yeah, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't forgotten you, I haven't forgotten you. Um, so come and have a listen to poetry and everything that's going on for Black History Month this month. Now, who is buying a book? because we've heard some great stories tonight. Uh, I've already bagged myself one, my partner's already bagged himself one. So that's two already gone, all right? So, so, so hurry up and get, get your pennies out. Um, and I'm gonna end on, we've heard some amazing authors tonight, and I just think there's, there's a book in everyone. Mine's at the bottom of that pint, but we won't worry too much about that. But if you are thinking of writing a book and you wanna do that, take comfort in some people who have spent four years getting their first novel together, some people who have more than one novel. And I think you've all been amazing tonight and I'm looking, to getting, looking forward to getting stuck into some of your books. Looking forward to seeing a lot of you here again and thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you.